Hey everybody, this is Jonathan out here in uh, editing land, post-production land, whatever you want to call it. Uh, thank you for listening to this on what I assume is your date night. You know, brings in the uh, romantic vibes. Most of our fans listen on their date night, so thank you for uh, allowing us to be a part of that. I just had a quick note to make. Throughout this episode, you will hear some audio differences between my microphone and Lindley's. We had a little snafu with the recording. Uh, you know, Lindley is a technology architect by day, but every once in a while, he makes a, makes a few mistakes at night. And so you're going to hear his microphone's going to sound a little bit different. I did what I could to fix it because I'm a technology genius at, as well. Uh, it's not too bad. I think after a while, you won't even notice it anymore. But I just want you guys to have a little mercy on us. It's not the best. Um, but, you know, Lindley's, he's Canadian. And what can you do? They don't, some of that metric conversions those types of things don't translate over well but hope you still enjoy the episode here we go welcome everybody to in context theology we are back for a part two a double header a, if you will, uh, might go into three. We don't know. <laughs> We're going to see how this goes today. Uh, but we are releasing this one uh, in sync, basically, with the previous episode. So if you haven't heard, I don't know what the title will be at the time of recording this, Jesus Part 1. Uh, this is Jesus Part 2. So this is going to largely build on that last episode where we talked about the humanity of Jesus. And so we're not going to spend too much time on this one recapping because it's really designed to be built off of uh, the previous one. It's like at this point in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, there's not a lot of recap time. You're either in it or you're not. They're not going to explain it to you. And that's kind of what we're doing here in the In Context Theology Universe. Um, anyway, so let's jump right in. So we talked about the humanity of Christ. And I think a good maybe launching off point would be Two of the titles that Jesus is um, referred to as or refers to himself as are the Son of Man and the Son of God. And we spoke a little bit in the last episode about what the Son of God means. It doesn't mean like he's God Jr. and, uh, you know, God is from a divorced marriage here and Jesus is his only son. And, he's, you know, it's like the Son of God meant the representation of God. And we'll get into that a lot more in this episode. But the Son of Man was a title from uh, Daniel uh, it was a prophetic title, and Jesus assumed that on himself. So the last episode was more about the Son of Man and, and his humanity, and now we're going to shift gears into the deity of Christ. And so I'm going to kick it over to Lindley to uh, get this thing moving. Oh, thanks, Jonathan. Uh, good to be back and um, good to be working on a topic that is so central to what we believe. Um, uh, we, As I like to say, we are Christians, which means we are followers of Christ uh, we're not just uh, random thinkers. Uh, we're not just making it up as we go. We actually have a belief system which is structured, organized, and well thought out. Um, and that That's becomes right. obvious because as we've looked through our historical, and we've gone through church history, we've looked at you know uh, different aspects of the Trinity, we've looked at different things as it relates to the overall um, theological constructs that make up Christianity. It, it makes sense, so to speak, and, um, and and it's a rational, reasonable faith that we have. Um, it's not just simply based on rationality and reason, but that is part of who we are as human beings, and I think it's important to recognize that it's also part of what constitutes the reality uh, of, of the world in which we live. And so God has constructed it this way, so when we think about it, it should make sense. And 
Last week we talked about the humanity of Christ. This week we're going to talk about the deity of Christ. And it's, and it's really important because our faith relies not just on Jesus as an extraordinary human being, but also on him being fully divine as well. Um, and I think this is important that we understand this, right? Because so many people would readily jump and say, hey, Jesus was a great, extraordinary human being. Um, but that's not all that he was. And today's discussion about his divinity is going to um, bring that to light, that he's not just an extraordinary human. He's He was fully human. That's definitely true. But he was fully divine as well. So so let's take a look at the, the biblical teaching on Christ's deity uh, and its multitudinous forms. Now, Jesus never actually said the three words, I am God. But Jesus also never said the exact four words, I am a prophet, or the exact four words, I am a man. But we know he was both a prophet and a man. It is not necessary for Jesus to say the exact phrase, I am a man, for we know that he was a man. And as a man, we talked about that last week, about all the things that he const- that constituted his humanity. So this week we want mm-hmm. to talk a little bit about his humanity, uh, his divinity. Likewise, it is not necessary for Jesus to utter three words, I am God, uh, as I just said, in order to determine that he was not divine. Jesus may not have said the exact sentence, but he did make these claims for himself, right? The claim and the title um, that we find in Exodus 3.14, we also find in John 8.58, right? We also notice that he received worship, Matthew 2, Matthew 14, Matthew 28, John 9. And as such, he claims that he will judge the world, Matthew 25, uh, in the apocalyptic discourse. He forgives sin, Mark 2, Jesus, uh, Mark 2 and 5. Jesus does not correct, also, Jesus does not correct Thomas when he declares, My Lord and my God, um, when he makes that profound statement in John 20 and 28. The writers of the New Testament make claims to Jesus' divinity. So this is now others having observed the life of Christ, recognizing something unique and special about him. And not that he was a great human, but that he was divine. John 1 and 1 declares, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, was with God, and the Word was God. Hebrews 1 and 3, The Son is the radiance of the glory and the exact representation of his nature. Colossians says, The Son is the image of the invisible God. And again, in the second chapter of Colossians, The fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily in Jesus. Is What do you think, and I don't want to detract from where we're going, why do you think Jesus didn't come around and say, like, here's an exact definition of who I am. I'm God. I'm this. You know, what was what was the point of his um, not beating around the bush or obscurity? But, you know, what what's your thought on that? Well, I think, you know, we're going to talk a little bit more about the offices of Jesus uh, as he was. He was the Christ. He was the Redeemer. He has the he is a, he is a prophet. He's a priest. He's a king. He has a variety of roles and functions. But most importantly, he he did emphasize his humanity in a lot of his actions and the way that he lived. And he knew that his role was not to convince people that he was divine. What was going to convince people that he was divine was was his death and then subsequent resurrection. And Paul makes this extremely important because, hey, listen, if some person comes along today and says, I am God, that's that still doesn't validate that. Right. The validation for Christ's divinity, while we can talk about it and we see it, you know, in his actions and some of his words, 
fundamentally rests, as Paul says, on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So it is his resurrection and his saving power in that regard that transforms individuals, gives credence to the fact that he was divine. Right? And it, and you see him kind of, well, I think there also was the, the, the matter of, like, if I come out on day one and say, I'm God, he's immediately going to be crucified on day one, not get to do his ministry. Uh, but you see him kind of pull it out of people. And like, it's as you say, you say, like, I think he talked to Pilate and some other folks. Is like, this is as you say it, you know, like, basically, I'm not, I'm not putting the words in your mouth. You Are you saying this for yourself? And, and also, um, he says to Peter, like, blessed are you, Peter, for the spirits revealed this to you, not man, you know? So I think there's, there's an element of, um, that that going on where jesus is like there's 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 more ways to learn this as you, you were just saying he didn't have to say i'm god for us to know that and then hinder the work of the spirit um does that make sense yeah it does a- again it's a self-proclamation of being divine doesn't make it so right mm-hmm. but others observing that, that's right others observing that and making that claim bring up tremendous credence to the claim then right and so we yeah. have like the you know the thief on the uh the the uh the roman soldier while you know jesus is on the cross right saying surely this was the son of god right i mean like the acknowledgement that this is something different this is something far beyond what what we think is normal because this is different uh we have Pilate, as you said we have doubting thomas as we call him we have others mm-hmm. who continue to say there's something else and then his activities give us the impression that he is divine. And, and we're going to talk about some of those things uh, later on as well. So, yeah, that's an important point that, you know, an important question. Why did he not just say, I am God? And, yeah. and I think it's, I think it becomes obvious if you just step, zoom out a little bit, it makes sense for him not to say, well, I am that person. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. It's like when I was playing basketball back in the day, people were like, you're five foot six. You can't be good at basketball. I'm like, I'm good. And then I would sit the bench. And then at the end of the season, they put me in. They're like, oh, you were pretty good. I'm like, thanks for noticing. And the season's over. Anyway, I don't want to drudge that up. but uh, Well, yes. Uh, continue. Yeah. In the same vein, we'll, we'll move on. Yeah, but I Sorry, Lindley. Basketball is an American sport. If it was hockey, you would know a little bit more. I, I do. All right. So, so let's take a look, quick look at a couple of historical departures from the deity of Christ. And again, we're focused on the deity of Christ, there's something called Ebionism. The Ebionites, they adhered to the belief that Jesus was an ordinary human, possessing unusual but not superhuman or supernatural gifts of righteousness and wisdom. He was the predestined Messiah, although in a natural or human sense. And at the baptism, the Christ spirit descended on Jesus in the form of a dove. This illustrated God's power working in Jesus. Towards the end of Jesus' life, the spirit of the Christ withdrew from him. The Ebionites cannot believe or rationalize the deity of Christ within the context of monotheism. In addition, they also rejected the letters of Paul. So that's uh, one of the historical uh, divergences away from believing in the deity of Christ. And again, it, it falls back on they just can't rationalize what it means to be human and divine at the same time. Mm-hmm. The second but most famous, I would say, of these divergences historically is called Arianism. Arianism is a non-Trinitarian Christian belief that asserts that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is the Son of God, but is entirely distinct from and subordinate to God the Father. Arianism is defined 
by those teachings attributed to Arius, which are in opposition to current mainstream Christian teachings about the Trinity and the nature of Christ. It was first attributed to Arius, and this is around 250 AD, uh, who was a presbyter in Alexandria of Egypt. The Arian concept of Christ is that the Son of God did not always exist, but was created by and is therefore distinct and separate from God the Father. This doctrine is taught today by the Jehovah's Witnesses. They hold that Jesus is somehow subordinate to the Father. The Trinitarian viewpoint was formally affirmed by the first two ecumenical councils of the Roman Church, thereby rejecting Arianism. All mainstream branches of Christianity consider Arianism to be heretical. And again, the champion, the champion of, of this Trinitarian view, anti-Arianism, um, is Athanasius. And uh, he is considered a great church father. Um, and it was over this point that he argued with Arius. Um, both of them, by the way, are from Alexandria. Not Alexandria, Virginia, where I used to live. Uh, different discussions going on in that part of the country. Uh, so you said that the this view was affirmed by the first two ecumenical councils, and then it was rejected. So why would you say affirmed? No, what does no, that no. Mean? The, they, they, the first two councils rejected this doctrine. They, aff- oh, they affirmed oh. the Trinitarian viewpoint. Gotcha, okay. Yes. Gotcha, okay. And so that's a pretty big deal because this is saying that Jesus was not one with the Father. He was he was a man who ascended to to Godhood. Essentially, is that right? Um, it's tied to the Gnostic tradition in a way. This this notion is tied to a Gnostic tradition, tradition, which basically says that God is pure spirit, and as pure spirit, in order for him to be matter of some sort, he has to be. That means there's an infection. Of that matter matter is impure it is not perfect only God is spirit is perfect so therefore you have to have someone in between mediating between pure spirit and pure imperfect matter and that is Jesus so Jesus came into existence he was created by the Father and he now sits in that place now he has a very important role he's right up there you know what I mean and, you know if you're an yeah. Aryan but the problem was they could not rationalize Jesus's humanity and his is his divinity and that's where they stumble because if he is purely divine then he cannot be matter he cannot have the humanity that's required for him and therefore they create a new category and Jesus is the only one in that category wow so as early as 250 AD this theory is floating uh and so you said Jehovah's Witness will they believe this. I think Mormons believe then that Jesus was a man like born of God, but he was basically a man like us. And eventually we can all basically become Jesus's. I might be wrong there, but does that sound? I, it, it, I, I'm not an apologist. Um, and, 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 and I'm definitely not, uh, you know, an expert on, on things like that. But I, if I do recall, uh, you're right. that The notion that Jesus is an example for us, um, and we can be gods like Jesus is a God. But mm-hmm. Jesus' godhood and divinity is a little god, not a big god. There's God the Father, and then there's mm-hmm. all these little gods, so to speak, right? It's more like mm-hmm. a pantheon of gods. Uh, it, re- it reminds me more of the Greek notion of a variety of gods, uh, with some being really powerful gods and some lesser gods. 
So maybe uh, on a future podcast, I'll tell you about how I accidentally ended up at a Mormon Christmas party and uh, wonderfully kind people. But it was a uh, it's like hmm, we have some discussions to have here. <laughs> And also, of course, I have a vendetta against the Mormons for uh, downvoting my book that they misattributed. <laughs> That's right. It was written. I uh, saw. So, uh, okay, okay. Uh, brief, brief story is uh, on Goodreads. I had my book almost already, and all of a sudden, I started getting all these negative reviews. And it was like, I read it for Mister Walker's class, and I didn't like it. I was like, oh, oh, that's interesting that a teacher assigned my book. And then I kept getting all these bad reviews. They're like, it doesn't really talk about Mormonism. I'm like, it's not what it's designed to do. Found out there's a book called Almost a Mormon. And they clicked on my book and left these horrible reviews. So if you ever read Almost Already, go on Goodreads. Give it an upvote because uh, the Mormons are trying to bring your boy down. <laughs> and uh, apparently they can't read very good because it's two different books. Anyway, so I have it out for the Mormons. I think everyone knows that. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> well, a handful anyway. of them. You have it out for a handful of them who gave you bad reviews. Um, <laughs> They're extremely nice people, but they'll get you on good on Goodreads. So. Anyway, sorry, Lemmy. <laughs> no problem. All right. So let's take a look at a couple of the implications of the deity of Christ and these are I'll be fairly quick here one we can have a real knowledge of God as Jesus said anyone who has seen me has seen the Father that is a fundamental belief of, of, of West of, of the Christian doctrine Two, redemption is available to us the efficacy and the sufficiency of Christ is supreme so his work on the cross is total and complete because it is divine as well as it is fully human. God and humanity are now reunited in Christ and by Christ. And to me, that is a wonderful thing. Because if you think back to the very beginning, the divine and the human were in a perfect relationship. That now is completed and is now done in Christ Jesus himself. And finally, Number four, worship of Christ is appropriate. So it is, it is not just simply a worship of God the Father, but it's worship of God the Son as well. It is appropriate. It is right. For he has done great things as the old song used to be. All right. Now we're going to talk about the unity of the person of Christ. Right. So now we've got these two things. Right. We've got we've got a God. We've got man. We've got two natures now, fully God and fully man. So let's kind of go through some of this, what this means. The biblical view is somewhat difficult to understand how the two natures, which are somewhat contradictory in nature, can coexist simultaneously within a single person. The orthodox position is that Jesus is the, quote, God, man, unquote, fully God and fully man. A necessity in light of what Christ came to do, which is to rescue man from sin. Now, it is a complicated subject. It is difficult to understand. There are no other analogs. No one other. No one else has ever has done this. No one else has been given this role or function. So it's not like we can compare this to anything else. Jesus is unique in this sense, and therefore it is important that we understand. That, that's why we're doing these podcasts to understand that about his humanity as well as his divinity. They're both simultaneously important. And though how the two natures coexist is difficult to understand, we know that it must be because God is able to do it. All right. So here's a quick few misunderstandings about, about the God-man. One, we have Nestorianism. Nestorius thought in terms of a conjunction of natures rather than a union of natures. Okay, so that's the distinction that Nestorius had. Eutychianism. 
This is a hybrid view of the divine and the human natures becoming a third substance. Uh, and, and that is problematic because there's no need for a third substance. There's adoptionism. This was Jesus was merely a human at some point. God adopts Jesus as the son, and it's a pure act of grace on God's part to give him the Christ um, aspect that he needs in order to pull off what he comes to do. There's an anhypostatic Christology. This view insists that Jesus' humanity and was impersonal and had no independent subsistence. And therefore, that really means that he really was divine and that the, the human nature of him, that, that which constitutes the human Jesus, was really just pushed down, not really important whatsoever. That sounds familiar to um, from the previous podcast. Uh, was that Apollinarianism? Yes, similar to Apollinarianism. That's correct. Okay. okay. Then we have the dynamic incarnation. This is the incarnation should be thought of as the active presence of the power of God within the person of Jesus, right? And this basically is, uh, you know, similar to adoptionism. The power of God comes on Jesus the man, and, you know, it's the power, but it's not the nature. There's no divine nature within Jesus himself, right? Hmm. That means, and again, when we're using the word nature here, we're talking about the constitutive aspects all the parts, all the attributes, all the capabilities that constitute a human, as well as those that constitute what it means to be divine. Do you think that Jesus basically had access to the dynamic incarnation and he chose to withhold, like I'm thinking of, I think it was in the garden when Peter chops off the soldier's ear and he's like, don't you think I could call a legion of angels to come and like rescue me from this, you know? And, or was this like beyond his, like, as Jesus is walking as a man, was that, was there a doorway for him to, like, an escape hatch? Or was he fully human and subject to all that kind of stuff? What, what do you think that was like for him? I think, I, we'll talk a little bit about this later on, but I, I, I think that Jesus performed all his activities and actions, and his temptations were legitimate because he performed them in the manner of being dependent upon the Spirit of God, rather than doing them as the second person of the Trinity, Jesus the Divine. So therefore, though he had a divine nature, he set aside the power associated with that nature, and he acted, and this is what gives credence to his humanity, he acted as you and I do. He was, as we talked about, he was hungry, he was tired, he suffered, and then he died, okay? And therefore, there is a, I get what you're saying with the dynamic incarnation, and he could have. In fact, the devil tempts him to some, he say, hey, why don't you call down right. the angels and so forth? And yet he rejects that. And he rejects it the same way that you and I reject the te any temptation, which is to rest on the word of God and what the word of God has to say. So I think it, it would be easy for him to do something if he wanted to, to change the course of history. But he does not. He continues to be obedient, as the Bible says, even obedience uh, unto death on the cross. Mm -hmm. So I think that's mm -hmm. important. He's consistent from beginning to end. Uh, yeah, and that, I mean it's reflected in the when he says even like not my will, but your will be done. That's right. You know, he had a will, and just like any human, our wills are naturally going to grate against God's will. And but he said he Jesus set aside his will, and you know 
fully dependent on the spirit, as you said. Um, and I think it's so interesting. To, uh, and it's like we talked about in the last podcast. Like he empathizes with us. He gets it. Like he knows what it's like to struggle and what it's like to have a will that wants to go against <laughs> his his own father's will, his will. You know. So um, that's super fascinating. Yeah. All right. So I th- I think it's important that we just we'll just quickly go through some of the Christological titles and and these are names and titles we read about in the New Testament which reflect directly on the identity of Jesus Christ. Um, the biblical writers use terms to designate what Jesus did, what he said, and what was done to him. So number one, he is Messiah, and this is a, t- a term set against the backdrop of the Old Testament. The root of the word means one who has been anointed. Prophets and priests were anointed, but the term was primarily reserved for a king. And I think that's interesting, which a lot of people lose track of that. Yeah, I didn't know that. Son of God. We talked about this earlier. The term is somewhat misunderstood. It is best translated belonging to God. It is not surprising then that the Council of Nicaea, talk about the Nicene uh, Creed, grants Jesus to be the same substance of the Father. And that's where Athanasius argued with Arius. We have the term Son of Man. Just as the term Son of God is affinity with the divine, Son of Man affirms Jesus' affinity with humanity in its totality. The term Son of Man was also used in the Old Testament to refer to the eschatological figure, that is the figure that would come, um, that would bring about the end of history and the final judgment on mankind. And that is a, a divine person as well. Lord is a term ascribed to Jesus, a key term which belonged to the early Christians' confession of faith. It's important for them. The Greek word kyrios was used to translate Yahweh in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Therefore, Lord carries powerful connotations and is directly associated with God, further deepening the notion that Jesus is Lord, is Lord and thus God. When yeah, and this is a whole separate podcast. But the term "Lord," it's it's been used. It's used in the Old Testament, and it has a couple of different meanings, or depending on how it was written, right? So, like that that Psalm, the Lord said to my Lord, and um, like when yeah, like in the I think Caesar was called Lord in somewhere. I don't know if you say there's no other Lord but God, you know, like maybe that's a whole separate. I don't want to detract, but um, yeah, it's a heavy term to to ascribe to Jesus, right? It is, and you know, look, the term Lord is a very broad term, but but used specifically in the New Testament times and even in the Old Testament, uh, the Greeks translated that, as I said, uh, whenever they saw the word Yahweh, they put the word uh, Kyrios there, which means Lord, which we now in the English use the word Lord for. Uh, so therefore, that's how it was used in the Bible. Uh, but it has broader meaning than that. Some of them stronger and some of them weaker. So, for example, today in the modern days, we have uh, the House of Lords in, in the British mm-hmm. Parliament. Um, so, right. so, yeah, so it, it can be a stronger or weaker term. Um, as it relates to the, the Christian confession, uh, it really is about Jesus being God and, and his divinity. Yeah. So if you've seen uh, Lord of the Dance, it's, it's not talking about <laughs> The Messiah. Okay. No. Good to know. Good to know. Um, and then we have Savior. Jesus is the one who saves. It is amazing that acknowledging Jesus as Savior is the equivalent of ascribing to Jesus something which only God can do, save from sins. The power and the authority to forgive sin belongs to Jesus. Number six, God. 
Jesus is called God. John 101, John 20, 28, through Thomas's declaration, and the opening of the epistle to the Hebrews. We have the word Jesus being God. Hmm. All right. So let's talk about some Christological models. And what do I mean by models? So it becomes difficult sometimes to bring this all together. And people have tried different ways to uh, say, how does it all fit together, right? So I'll quickly go through these as best I can um, in the time that we have. Number one, the substantial presence of God in Christ. This is theological thinking has influenced this notion. It is the affirmation of the divine nature and the presence of God, presence in Christ. The divine nature assumes the human nature in the incarnation, right? This model is a direct response to the Gnostics. They believed that matter was evil and that God was pure spirit, we talked about this earlier, and as pure spirit was perfect. Therefore, to Christian Gnostics, they believed that redemption was purely a spiritual affair. But the Alexandrians, those who from Alexandria, Egypt, wanted to and successfully defended the notion that God had become flesh in order to be like all humanity. Jesus, therefore, was a combination of the divine in flesh. God saves us, body and spirit. So, real quick, time out. Yeah. Um, who are the Gnostics? We've mentioned it a few times. So, the Gnost- Gnostics is a word come from the word uh, gnosis, which means knowledge. And the Gnostics, there are Jewish Gnostics, there are Greek Gnostics, there are uh, uh, Iranian Gnostics, or Persian Gnostics. They're, the concept of, and, the, and, Greek, and Egyptian as well, the term Gnostic has to do with knowledge. And it, this is a group of people who believe that use, uh, having pure knowledge is what allowed you to escape this world and go into and be wrapped up into the divine when you die and be part of the one and that notion of oneness with God. So it wasn't really a uh, like a group of people, but it was a term maybe assigned to folks who thought in a, in a general sense. Yes. So it's a belief. It's a set of beliefs associated with perfect knowledge. Hence the word gnosis, meaning knowledge. And that knowledge was required. And it was about um, on a spiritual dimension. Um, so some of the key things in Gnostic thinking, for example, are that God is pure spirit, and as pure spirit, he is pure and perfect, and that's what makes him divine. And then there are these what are called emanations. And these emanations are um, kind of, let's say, 90% spirit, 10% matter. And they go down to 80, 20, 70, 30. When they get down to us, we're just pure flesh. And as pure matter, we are very imperfect. We are not worth having. We are not worth knowing. There's nothing good about us, right? And the only way to escape this imperfection is to have pure knowledge about the one. Uh, And that one is what we hope when we die to return into. Um, Hmm. And that's only reserved for those who really can make it there, so to speak. It's not for everyone. Interesting. So it's a kind of like a philosophy on life, but it's not a shared sect of people. So kind of the same way, you know, the 1960s hippies, you know, 
<laughs> they're their own thing. You talk to somebody, it's like, you know, living in Boston. Yeah, you know, he's a modern day hippie, yeah. but an Oregon hippie, it's a whole, you kind of get it. Like they all have the same philosophy, but they're different and they wouldn't say they're in the same group. I got it. I've totally explained it. Keep going, Lindley. Yeah. Um, Everyone understands that. I, I think it'll be interesting to do some more digging onto the, the Gnostics because Gnosticism has is actually in its very early forms. If you recall the epistle by John, he talks about anybody who says that Jesus has not come in the flesh is antichrist. These are, this is John speaking to Gnostic thinking already in the first century AD. Mm. So this was already a concept and set of ideas already floating around. Yeah. Yeah, we could do a subject uh, a podcast on that. Also, I think I just nailed it with the hippie analogy. But, <laughs> well, 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 why don't we kick off with not your much analogy. else to cover? Yeah, we'll, kick off, yeah. we'll kick off with your analogy and move from there. Perfect. All right. <laughs> All right. Number All right. two, Christ is mediator between God and humanity. Christ is often re- referred to as the mediator between God and man. This lends weight to the idea that God's presence in Jesus Christ mediates between the transcendent God and the fallen humanity. This combination of the divine and the presence of God in flesh leads to two complementary ideas. The first is offered by Emil Brunner is that of revelation. Jesus mediates revelation to us. He gives us revelation. Revelation cannot be understood as a set of propositions or nor can it be understood intellectually. God is revealed to us personally and historically in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the mediator of God himself to us, and it is accomplished as revelation. John Calvin, he conceives of Christ the mediator in a soteriological manner, that is relating to sin and forgiveness of sin. Man is ruined by sin. His will is totally corrupt. Man is therefore unable and lacks the will to make a decision for God. True knowledge of God must come from outside. Jesus must act as the mediator. As God, he can come to man. Because he is human, humanity can receive the presence and the activity of God. Therefore, Calvin says, the Son of God became the Son of Man and received what is ours in such a way that he transferred to us what is his, making that which is by his nature to become ours through grace. So a complicated statement, but essentially the, what Calvin is saying is Christ did it all, right? He comes, he comes to us. He, he's the one who does the work on the cross. He's the one who mediates to us um, the grace um, and that wonderful nature that we have uh, is, which is freed from sin and the penalty of sin. That's a beautiful quote. I'm going to say it again. The Son of God became the Son of Man and received what is ours in such a way that he transferred to us, or sorry, in such a way that he transferred to what is his, making that which is his by nature to become ours through grace. That's good. Yeah. This John Calvin guy sounds like he's got some good ideas. Yeah, uh, I don't often quote. Yeah, Cal- hey, I don't often. Do you have a mega church around here anywhere? <laughs> uh, I don't often quote Calvin, but I think this was really, uh, I think, bang on. Yeah, yeah, I feel like these probably got a ton of followers, mostly men in the college age. Anyway, continue to go. I'm just kidding. We joke around here. We joke. (laughs) All right. Um, Yes, number three, the revelational presence of God in Christ. Revelation is a a complex in the sense that we associate it with 
with the final end things, right? The book of Revelation. But God's complete unveiling and it's and it also possesses a more restricted usage, making God known. So there are two key figures here about the revelation of the presence of God. The first figure is Pannenberg, and the second person is Bart. Bart, who I cited earlier, is a well-known theologian. Bart has at his center of his theology the person of Jesus Christ, who is God's revelation and witness to us in the Holy Scriptures. Bart states that the, all church doctrine and ideology must be viewed through the lens of Jesus. I fully agree with him. Balthazar, who is a Catholic theologian, and Swiss like Bart, illustrates Bart's Christological concentration by comparing it to an hourglass, in which the sands pour from the upper section through the constriction to the lower section. Similarly, the divine revelation passes from God above down to the world through to the world below through a central event. And that central event or constricting concept, which is the revelation of Jesus Christ, apart from which there is no link between God and humanity. Pannenberg, on the other hand, sees revelation in the final sense. That is, the resurrection of Jesus is seen as the anticipation of all things final, the culmination and the final revelation of God himself. In Pannenberg's concept of revelation, God's declaration of himself is subsumed and anticipated completely in Jesus. Everything has already happened, and therefore Jesus Christ can reveal God. The resurrection thus establishes Jesus' identity with God and allows this identity with God to be read back into the Jesus pre-Easter ministry in terms of his revelational presence. This, What does this mean? This means that God's self-revelation contains the idea that what is revealed and the revealer are one and the same, Jesus. If this is not the case, then Jesus has revealed nothing at all. And all that is said that I said there really revolves around this notion. Jesus is complete. And what we know of what God has done in him in the past, in the present, and in the future is now turned back and allows us to understand what Christ did while here on earth. So, number four, we have Christ. <laughs> <laughs> still wrap my head around. I'm like, I... I got another. Uh, I, well, I do think that ending clause is good. It, so it means that God's self-revelation contains the idea that what is revealed and the revealer are one and the same, Jesus. So basically, the answer to the He is the answer to the question. Like He and He's the one telling us the answer. Right. Like it's all He is him. the revealer. He is the one whose life reveals what it is to know God. But because He is that revealer, right? He has therefore himself the revelation of God, right? So he mm -hmm. then unfolds that, and now it makes sense what he has done, right? Mm -hmm. So remember, Pannenberg is looking forward to what is happening, accomplished in the resurrection, not in the incarnation. So he doesn't start at the beginning, he starts at the uh, end and works yeah. backwards. I think that makes sense. Right. <laughs> we'll, um, you know, float that through the brain a little bit tonight while we're sleeping, and hopefully it makes more sense after that. <laughs> yeah. All right, number four, Christ is the symbolic presence of God. This model treats the traditional Christological formulas as symbols of a presence of God in Christ. The presence is symbolic and not substantial. The symbolic presence implies that what is available to Christ is available to us. Paul Tillich is the architect of this notion. 
Paul Tillich is a very famous theologian from the 20th century. <clears throat> the essence of which this argument is that Jesus of Nazareth symbolizes the universal possibility of all humanity. Jesus is symbolic of the new being or new life. Tillich wraps up his understanding in existential philosophy. This approach is not a traditional or orthodox position, but it is helpful in illustrating an aspect which we can miss, and that is Jesus is an example for us. Now, we don't want to make Jesus an example as the only true value that Christ has to offer, but it does illustrate it. And again, it was important that Tillich make these statements because during the 20th century, existential philosophy was a powerful form of philosophical thinking, um, very, very important. Sartre, Heidegger, Kierkegaard, uh, these are the you know some main thinkers in that space. And therefore, it was good that Tillich took the time to understand the philosophy and respond as a Christian. So that's a, uh, it's not, it's not a theology in itself, it, entirety of to sum up Jesus. It's more like a. It's like a side item, it, a side menu. Yes, it, part yeah, to the it, it, yeah. It, it, I would call it. It's kind of like an appetizer. It is a way, though, mm -hmm. to help us understand part of the complete picture. And mm -hmm. and and I'll yeah. say this before we proceed: all of these models that we're looking at are incomplete in themselves. Mm, because that's a good distinction, right? Yeah. They, they they but they do touch on certain aspects to make sure that we don't miss something. And that's why we're going yeah. through these models. Yeah. Okay, number five: Christ as the bearer of the Holy Spirit. This model is that which sees Jesus as being anointed with the Holy Spirit. Jesus is endowed with special divine or charismatic gifts subsequent to his baptism. Thus, Christ is the example par excellence for us, in that we too can be endowed with the Holy Spirit. God's presence is available to humanity in the same sense that it was given to Jesus of Nazareth. For those of you who are interested in this concept, take a look at Walter Casper. He takes the approach which he extracted from the Old Testament, of which Jesus associates with the Spirit of the Lord. Casper sees the Spirit of the Lord at work in humanity, with Jesus as the focal point at which the universal saving attention of God becomes a unique historical person. The same Spirit which, spirit which imbues Jesus can be in us. So again... That aspect that his activities, right, um, on earth, Jesus' activities on earth are powered by the Holy Spirit. Um, and again, he finds, Casper finds this concept in the Old Testament um, known as the Spirit of the Lord. And I think that's important. And I think that's the, it brings light to when Jesus, I, I think, presented, not his hometown, but, uh, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He reads that passage from Isaiah. That's correct. The spirit of the Lord is upon me and is anointed me to, you know, bring about uh, good news to the poor and that passage. Uh, and he's saying the spirit's upon me. He's not saying I am the spirit. I'm a spirit. You know, he's saying like, and then that, I think that also goes to when he says like, you, you'll do greater things than I'm doing. Like this is the same power. The power that I'm accessing right now as a man is the same power that you can access right. uh, with your mortal bodies. Is that right? Yep, that's absolutely that's absolute the fundamental key aspect of that, that notion. Number six, Christ the example of a godly life. This is taken from the Antiochian Christological view. Remember Antioch, one of the five primary centers of Christianity. Um, an important place, Antioch. They emphasize the moral aspects of Christ's character. Christ's divinity serves to give authority and weight to his human moral character. So, 
Um, here, it is possible to live a godly life. We have a change and a transformation in us because of Christ, because of Christ in us, that spirit dwelling in us, and allows us to reject sin where possible. Uh, and again, this is it means that we have the ability to do these things. The godly life is possible. Um, number seven, Christ is hero. Uh, this is an interesting one. This is a rather strange approach, but when viewed in its cultural context, it makes a lot of sense. This is an Anglo-Saxon cultural perspective. The concept of hero is extremely important. For that time, in order to emphasize the momentous triumph of the crucifixion, Christ is portrayed as, portrayed as a bold warrior who confronts and defeats sin in a heroic battle, displaying the virtues of honor and courage. We read this in the old English poem of around 750, right, which said, called the dream of the rude, rude meaning cross. Christ is the hero of all heroes. And I think, you know, when I speak to some of my friends who uh, who read comic books, this is this kind of resonates with them. Now, uh, I want to see Jesus is more than hero, but I understand in the you know from a, a long time ago the notion of fighting a war and winning and that heroic battle of defeating sin i can understand how it makes sense in that context mm -hmm. yeah well there you go bonnie tyler there's your hero <laughs> that you're asking everyone for all right number that's a deep cut that's a deep cut right there folks <laughs> Right. Deep indeed. Number eight, our final uh, model is the kenotic approach to Christology. And this is, this is we talked about this earlier, actually. This is taken from Philippians 2, 5 and 8. And this is the idea that in the incarnation, Christ deliberately set aside all his divine attributes so that in his state of humiliation, and that is his incarnation coming to earth and becoming flesh, Christ voluntarily abandoned all all the privileges of divinity, thereby stressing his humanity and foremost his suffering as a human being. Hmm. So that's what we were kind of talking about earlier. That's correct. Jumped yes. Ahead. So there's of course a multitude of understandings concerning Jesus. Many of the more modern approaches focus on his humanity, and the goals are very different. And I, I'm just going to whip through a few of these. But what we see here is that again, and as I said earlier, none of these models are complete in themselves. Because Christ did so much, <clears throat> he is an example different than everybody else because he is not just simply human. He didn't just simply come as God. He took on this dual nature. It works together. There's no one like him before him. There will be no one else like him after him. And in this sense, then, all these models are attempting to bring aspects and keep in check so that we don't go off in one direction and get a wrong Christological view. Okay. So here are a few uh, more modern ones. And, I, and and again, I don't agree with all of these, but I see kind of sometimes see where they're coming from. Uh, John Dominic Crossman, a Catholic thinker from Notre Dame, argues that Jesus was a poor Jewish peasant that challenged the powers of the structures of his society. Jesus breaks down social convention by extending the table of fellowship to sinners and social outcasts. And, and, and while Jesus did do that, um, I don't think that was his goal and purpose. Uh, so I think Crossland is not really right on point, but I think he does make sure for us to understand that the poor um, and, and the structures of power are something that we have to confront and deal with as Christians. Mm -hmm. Marcus Borg, he suggests that Jesus was a subversive sage concerned to renew 
Judaism in a manner which posed a powerful challenge to the ruling temple elite. Um, I find this to be not very um, well thought out, but um, Borg is, an, is a famous person. Um, I, I think that Jesus, at least from the biblical texts and many of the extra biblical texts early on, would uh, challenge this notion. Uh, Burton Mack, well, he sees Jesus as a cynical Hellenic sage concerned to identify and mock the conventions of contemporary society. Um, Burton Mack, I don't know where he got his education, but I'm not going to attend the same school. Uh, he would definitely have a podcast. <laughs> yeah, he nowadays. probably does. Yes, he does. And then we have E.P. Saunders. Saunders is a, is a very profound thinker and someone worth engaging with. And I think it, we should listen to him. Um, not that I agree with everything that he says. He insists that Jesus is seen as a prophetic figure who was concerned with the restoration of the Jewish people. God would restore the Jewish people and the nation with Jesus um, a, as God's representative. Each one of these appropriations have a logical sense to them, but I think they are very incomplete and not well thought out. Not surprisingly, though, they ring true with many people today, many of which are in the church. <laughs> they hold these similar ideas about Jesus. But these are dangerous and incomplete appropriations. Jesus is not out just to do good in the world. His mission transcends into a larger problem, the problem of God and humanity's estrangement facilitated through the ugliness of sin. In order to complete the necessary reconciliation, God had to come, and he did, and he came in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. We can be thankful that all the requirements are met in total in the person of Jesus, fully God and fully man. That's awesome. And I think that's, you know, the what we just said, like these are, all of these explanations are incomplete. There's a, they come together to, um, begin to tell the full story of who Jesus is. We're never going to fully um, encompass it all. I, I think of this about, and I don't want to take a shift away too far, but Martin Luther King, one of the things I've, I've thought about over the years is that a lot of people want to refer to him for like his, his stance on justice. Like, look what he said. Like, you know, like this is clearly a model. He did a lot of good things for civil rights. And then you have other folks maybe from the other side of the aisle that want to look to him for like, he was a, the Bible and, you know, the, the scriptures and all the things he said, you know, like, quote, he's a, he's a preacher. And they kind of separate the two sides of him. And my view is that you can't you can't talk about the justice that MLK stood for without talking about the foundations he got that from the Bible and his, his you know, the theological stances on things and the, what funded that. And you can't just talk about the theology that you might agree with on him and not also include the justice part, part of it all. It all goes together. And I think that with jesus times that to the millionth degree of like you can't say he's a good teacher and not call him lord or you can't call him lord and then ignore you know everything that encompasses him and that i think that's what the challenge is is that we like to make what's that uh <laughs> was it depeche mode or your own personal jesus um <laughs> and it's 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 really a, it's it's accurate we all kind of do that and it's been interesting to me as, as we've gone through this i'm like oh i think that oh that's something i would easily you know and and so I hope this these two podcasts have like challenged your thinking on this stuff because I find myself easily slipping into like you know what we talked about doicism or Apollinarianism, um, where well yeah Jesus could avoid that stuff because he was God too you know but like I've just been challenged by this and I and I think it's impossible to fully encompass all of Jesus in, in one explanation and we all I think at the end of this you should feel a little bit conflicted um, 
but also full of hope. <laughs> so I don't. How does it make you feel, Lindley, with all this stuff? Did what I said there? Any of that ring true or make sense? Oh, absolutely. I think you know it is important for us to understand that what MLK did was motivated, fueled, and organized around a set of beliefs, and those beliefs are what brought him to the conclusions that he came to. And many people want the conclusions, but don't want to take the same path that he did. And I think that's problematic, obviously. Um, and the same applies, the same logic applies here in the Christian life. And that's what makes Jesus so special and unique. He's more than just a religious leader, right? Because as a religious leader, you could say, well, he did a pretty good job, uh, but he's not perfect. But his claim and the claims of him are that he is perfect because he is God. And as such, there now are demands made on us. And we don't like that, right? Mm -hmm. Especially in yeah. modern society where we don't want anyone to tell us anything, where no, we don't want anybody to impose on us a point of view. It is very difficult for us to accept some of these things. But nonetheless, if he is God, then he is worthy of listening to. And yes, it comes about through revelation, but it comes up about through the work of the Spirit. And it, we are able to live a life that is desired to the highest degree if we live in Christ. And I think that's really what's important. And again, these foundational ideas that we've talked about, we've talked a lot today, and yet we have not exhausted everything that we could talk about the divinity and the humanity of Christ. It's so rich, it's so profound, it's so continuous, and that's what, to me, makes it the most exciting subject in all of Christian doctrine. Um, it's the reason why Karl Barth has 10,000 pages, uh, you know, uh, that, that are worth reading, uh, in my opinion. Uh, there's just so much. There it is about Jesus and Jesus alone. And if, if we just stayed focused on him, our Christianity would be purer. It would be better. It would be richer. We would be stronger for it. Uh, we sometimes delve into these side issues and we get sidetracked and we want to take on whether it be, um, you know, social work or politics or get involved in the culture um, where what we need to be involved in is Christ in Christ alone. So um, yeah. I think that's really important. Yeah, and I, I liked uh, that one point we, we hit where, you know, basically he is the answer to the question. Himself is the answer. Yes. Um, you know, and I think that's – it can be overwhelming sometimes. You read what he said and what it, we're commanded and what's commanded of us. Oh, lay down your life. Give it – you know, like, and oh, my gosh, how can I do this? Like, and, you know, he even told the disciples, with man, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. So, like, anything he's calling us to do, he will enable us to do. Anything that he – um, you know, he it's his he's he can empathize. He's been through this as a man, but he is also the God uh, of of the way out. You know, and so we fully can depend on him. We can fully trust him. We can fully rely on him. And I get you know, it's like laying in bed at night thinking through worst case scenarios, scared. Mm -hmm. You know, like what would I do? And I'm like, you know, he's with us though. Like he he will be with us. And one of the things I was talking to my wife about this week was that you know I know a lot of people have had troubles with. The American church, and I want to say that it's a distinct American church is its own thing, and compare the rest of the world, and throughout, you know, the time since since Christ, uh, the church can mean many different things. But you know, and so therefore, since they've had trouble with people in the churches, and I'm not minimizing that because I've had it myself, and I, not even to the degree that a lot of folks have, but they end up having have trouble with Jesus, or they have have trouble with God. And what I was thinking about this past week is like, so you have 
you have an issue with God and how he's presented, and now you think this. And you're probably right. Could it be that Christ was the one that led you to this answer? You know, could it be that God is the one that led you out of American Christianity and all of its flaws and led you to the truth? So I, th- I just thought, saw God in a new way of like, oh, he's going to lead us where he's going to lead us. And all we can do is respond and just be open. And I don't think God is sending us on this this giant maze of, of continuous mystery. It's, it's confusing. Obviously, 10,000 pages to encompass something is, you know, speaks to how mysterious and and dense this subject is but he's going to lead us to the truth because he is the truth yeah i I fully agree with you um unlike any other leader and like other famous person in the religious realm jesus is more than that Uh, he's more than them and that's what makes him um not only um a person get it worth getting to know it's something very important and has eternal consequences as far as the american church is concerned it's unfortunate that uh, the American church now carries with it some of the baggage of being a political organization and some other things that, in my opinion, detract from the message of Christ and the person of Christ. And to me, what yep. we need to do is return to the person of Christ. That will help us to then organize the message of Christ. right? And yep. then once we organize the message of Christ, then we'll know what we are called to do um, and those actions will then become more meaningful and righteous in the proper sense of the term. Uh, we are That's unfortunately right. caught up in trying to uh, clean up the world first and hope that they align to what we believe. Uh, and uh, right. I'm, I'm, I say that we, uh, broadly speaking, it does not include me. I don't think that way. But uh, that, unfortunately, is the problem right now. And there's a lot of baggage with the concept of what's called christianity right now and we need to jettison that as soon as possible yeah you're right it's a there's a purity to that term that we've uh we've forsaken and a lot of i know people are like i don't call myself a christian anymore i'm like i'm not giving up that term because i believe in what it stands for and the truth of what it is um and uh i you know we've talked about this before on the podcast like our lindley said it tonight he's like he's not a uh, apologetic per- teacher you know like our goal is not to out argue anybody our goal is to give you context, inform, and just lead you to Christ, and 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 for encourage you to um, basically eat what we're eating here, like participate in what we're participating in. Um, so I hope you've you've experienced that a little bit throughout these two episodes. Hope you understand how much Christ loves you, how much you are loved, and uh, that you do have a you have a place in this in this body of Christ. He's, there's an invitation for you, and I, I hope you feel empowered by that as well. Um, Lindley, any any final thoughts? No, well said, Jonathan. Well said. I could not add anything to that. All right. Well, I don't know how we're going to top these two episodes. I really enjoy this. Uh, But I heard somewhere there's about 10,000 pages on Jesus. So maybe we'll do another one. (laughs) We'll get some material there. But um, thank you, everyone, for joining. And, uh, you know, we never asked this, but if you haven't left a review on the podcast, fight those Mormons that are coming for me and leave a a good review on this uh, and feel free to share with others. Awesome. Thank you guys so much.